Hi, James. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for speaking with me today. Pleasure. Looking forward to the, the conversation. Uh, I hope, uh, hope it'll be an interesting one. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Um, so uh, we have spoken before and uh, you were helpful to me when I was trying to figure out what to do with my situation because your situation was similar in some ways to what I've been going through, different in some significant ways as well. But um, could you just introduce your yourself and your um, your particular circumstances with regards to this issue? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give the abridged version. Um, yeah, I I was I was training as a therapist in a master's degree over in the United Kingdom. I was three years into the degree. I was, I was on the cusp of setting up a private practice. Mm -hmm. I'd already spent hundreds of hours seeing clients for therapy on placement. And I started getting concerned about gender ideology and its influence on the mental health profession. And I decided to speak out about it. I started collaborating with other like-minded trainee and qualified therapists. Um, I did some publicity on social media. I started a petition to the government in the United Kingdom around safeguarding proper explorative therapy instead of pushing uh, affirmative therapy. Uh, and for that, I, that it cost me my, my degree. I was, I was expelled over an email um, out of the blue. And I'm now in a position where I'm having to take legal action against both my former training institution and one of the main therapeutic regulatory bodies in the UK um, for discrimination against my, my beliefs um, in this space. So, and that's all happened in the last year and a half. So you were three years in and almost finished. So that cost you quite a lot. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, it cost me financially because the course was expensive. Mm -hmm. you know, it was in the tens of thousands of pounds that I'd spent to date. I haven't got that. And I've got obviously no qualification to show for it now because I was, I was chucked out in the middle of the degree. Mm -hmm. um, but, but more importantly, it's cost me my, what my entire kind of future vocational path was going to be. I mean, I, I decided to retrain as a therapist because I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing that and helping mm -hmm. people in that way. And... That, that kind of went up in flames almost overnight. When you, when you talk about affirmative therapy versus exploratory therapy, could you explain that a little bit? Well, the core tenets of therapy, you know, it's rooted in exploration, uh, open, unbiased, neutral exploration you know there's this term around bracketing that's the term the therapist you use this idea that you should bracket your own personal judgments or experiences in many ways and try not to let it influence the type of therapy that you're providing um an exploration in terms of what has caused somebody to feel a certain way what factors in their life may have contributed to that what their options are again, in a, in a neutral, impartial, but, but in an empathetic manner. Mm -hmm. Whereas with gender ideology, that seems to have gone out the window. And we, we see the term 
affirmation. I, I see therapists on the website describing themselves as trans affirmative. Mm -hmm. We're being told that we should generally affirm somebody's gender identity. And as far as I'm concerned, and we look at the dictionary definition of what it means to affirm something, it, it's basically to agree or to nod along with it as being kind of the truth, as, as being reality. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that flies in the face of, of ethical therapy, you know, so if a client is coming to a therapist and saying, I'm trapped in the wrong body and I hate my body and I'm the wrong sex and I want to have these hormones and this part of my body surgically amputated, there's therapists out there who are just nodding along with us and affirming them, mm -hmm. you know, basically saying to them, if you feel that way, then that's your truth. That's your lived experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that's therapy. I mean, therapists shouldn't be robots with a, with a predetermined outcome before they've even sat down opposite a client. Mm -hmm. And it was this, this conversion therapy law or rule that was kind of pushing the affirmative therapy by, by claiming that anything but affirming was an attempt to convert? Well, that was the concern. I mean, the, the backdrop to this is that there's a document that governs therapists in the UK called, it's called the Memorandum of Understanding on Conversion Therapy. Okay. And it uses terms around, you know, affirmation. Now, the, the authors of this document will always say that they're not prohibiting expiration uh, well, you know, the argument back to that is that I challenged this document and I was expelled. So, mm -hmm. But so this document already exists. It's not it's not a legally binding document, but it, okay. it governs how therapists are to act. But yes, the, the UK government were looking at passing a ban on conversion therapy, basically targeting in particular religious interventions, but also talking therapies. Mm -hmm. um, they were going to ban it for both sexuality and gender identity. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the concern, because there's lots of other countries in the world that have um, implemented similar le legislation, and it's had really detrimental impacts on, on free speech in this area, but also on therapists' ability to, to practice mm -hmm. in an ethical manner. And I speak to therapists from abroad who say that they just won't work with clients and children in particular struggling with gender identity because they're worried they're going to be, uh, you know, criminalised for it and and. and disbarred from practicing so mm -hmm. that was what got me into the kind of campaigning in the first place was to make sure this didn't happen in the UK mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah we have a similar law to that here in Washington state actually they've added gender identity into the conversion therapy ban on um, sexual orientation so when I saw that I was still in school um, and it was I realized then that I might not want to seek licensure in this state because there's, I feel like that's a, um, that's a serious restriction on what you're able to do with your clients. And I, I wouldn't want to, uh, I think that it's a, um, it's a false parallel to draw the conversion therapy relationship between sexual identity or gender identity and sexual orientation. I don't feel, I feel like that's a false equivalency mm. that those two things should not be lumped in together in the same, the same law. Awesome. I, I completely agree. The, 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 they overlap in the sense that most, particularly children who develop gender dysphoria will end up just coming out as gay adults. Mm -hmm. 
you know, so there is a there is a correlation between these things, but no, they should not be treated as as one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, but but people kind of use the, the, the two of them interchangeably. You know, again, we have to think about the harm and the safeguarding aspect of this. Somebody's sexuality it, it is nothing more in many ways than a a feeling. You know, because if somebody is gay. It's because they have an attraction towards other people of the same sex, but they don't need to change anything about themselves. They, they mm -hmm. can simply just exist in that way. Mm -hmm. But to affirm somebody who says they're the wrong sex and trapped in the wrong body, well, what that almost always requires is powerful experimental medication and surgery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. Medicalization. Yeah. Yeah, I heard you um, talking about this at one point, and you made a comparison uh, to anorexia and affirming of body dysmorphia. And I thought that was a really great analogy. This is it. It's, you know, gen gender dysphoria. And some people say that that's not a helpful label for a mental health condition and all the rest of it, but it, it is a mental health condition. Um, it's not dissimilar to other types of condition where people feel disconnect between themselves and their bodies. Mm -hmm. We should be treating these things in a, in a similar manner. Um, th there is no other mental health condition where you can go to a surgeon and say, I want you to remove X part of my body and they'll do it. Mm -hmm. e even if they're genuinely really struggling. I mean, you could have somebody who, for whatever reason, just said, I don't know, my right arm, I just hate it so much. It doesn't belong to me. It's never felt like a part of me. It makes me so depressed, almost suicidal, having it here attached to me every day. I mean, this is quite, a, you know, an extreme example. But if somebody presents with, to a surgeon with that, the surgeon is not going to amputate their arm. And yet we've got young women out there who can say much the same about their breasts and mm. perfectly healthy breasts. And the surgeon will say, sure. Yeah, and it's interesting because it seems like there's it like the medical industry can't decide if this is an elective cosmetic, um, you know, surgery that we should be able to access without any kind of mental health gatekeeping or whether it's a mental health um, issue. So we have these people who who provide letters and I've seen these um, letter writing sites that will provide letters that, that will provide you with counselors to give you letters without doing much scrutiny or much examination of your, um, you know, your trauma history or what's going on with you, exploration, as you say, just provide a quick letter saying that your, met, um, that your mental well-being is well-suited for you to go ahead with the surgery. So it's, it's this, are we gatekeeping or are we not gatekeeping in terms of allowing people to elect these, these decisions, these, these mm. life-changing surgeries for young people who haven't fully finished forming. Mm. So it's I, I, it's a really interesting time. I don't know exactly what this industry thinks they're doing right now. Well, there's a lot of people making a lot of money out of this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the UK, the focus has been on national health service, mm -hmm. but, and there's been some positive changes in that respect, but there's been plenty of private clinics out there providing this treatment. Um, 
and they're charging a you know, pretty penny for it. And more and more health insurance schemes are covering it. I, I've mentioned this before. I, I looked at my health insurance policy, which I get via work recently, um, because I had, I think it was for an ingrown toenail. It's not, a, not, not particularly pleasant to talk about, there we go. Um, and I, you know, I thought, well, might this be covered? Because it was, you know, it's a, health, it's a health issue. It's causing me a lot of pain, et cetera. And I looked and it's not covered, you know, kind oh. of any related problems are not covered. So I was just flipping through the pamphlets of what is covered. And then I come across this page and my health insurance policy covers full gender reassignment surgery. Wow. Wow. So you have a physical ailment that's causing you real pain and potential infection, and that's not covered, but your mental anguish over your gender would be a medical necessity that would be covered. Correct. And, and interestingly, it wasn't, you know, if you suffer from gender dysphoria, we will provide you with X number of counseling sessions. It wasn't that. It's straight into the hormones and the surgery. Wow. So it's a complete, it's a complete, I mean, you mentioned kind of gatekeeping. Mm -hmm. And we, we need gatekeeping when it comes to, you know, uh, strong medical interventions. And we do it for anything. Again, you know, like a, a psychiatrist, for example, in many ways is a gatekeeper when it comes to, you know, medication that might be prescribed for mental health conditions. You, you cannot simply just go in and present and say, I feel X, give me Y, and mm -hmm. you fence this you know on your say so it, it requires kind of objective scrutiny and management but because this ideology tells us that if somebody feels this way then they are that way and there's nothing you can say there's nothing you should say to dissuade them from it then where, where is the safeguarding where is the checking that this is actually the right pathway for you and it's then unsurprising that we've got increasing numbers of detransitioners saying I should never have been allowed to take this medication or have this surgery in the first place. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have let me do this. You, you had a duty of care towards me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great comparison, the psychiatrist and medication. And yeah, the unimaginable regret that I've heard detransitioners express is, uh, I mean, if that's not a reason to slow down and take another look at what's going on, I don't know what is. Well, I, I often hear from trans activists and proponents of this ideology that, you know, one person's, um, one person's regret or one person's suffering whilst, you know, awful shouldn't, um, shouldn't prevent everyone else for whom this treatment, et cetera, benefits. But I always find that argument when it comes to gender ideology very interesting because if we take the statistics as they kind of currently stand, you know, estimates that are, you know, 1% of the population are trans, mm -hmm. well, they expect the other 99% of us to completely capitulate towards them through our language, through our mm -hmm. symbols, through how we live our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when it's something they disagree with, they say, oh, don't worry, that's just a minority. You shouldn't have to, the majority shouldn't suffer for the minority. But when it suits their purposes, they're happy to completely row back on that and reverse it. So I, I find that a fundamental inconsistency with this as an ideology. Mm -hmm. What has it been like for you to be speaking out publicly and be exposed to so much, um, I guess, so much conflict around this? I mean, initially it was a shock to the system because as far as I was concerned, I was actually doing the right thing by raising concerns with my therapy body, 
by speaking out about this. I was trying to be a decent kind of citizen. And, you know, I was, I was still training as a therapist. So wanting to demonstrate a practice in an ethical manner was, was hugely important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought people would be receptive and want to have this conversation, but it's been a complete shutting down of the conversation, particularly within the mental health profession. And, and yeah, some of the, I mean, I've had a lot of support, very you know, grateful for that. And I've met a lot of very inspiring people through this process. But yes, the, the, the abuse and vitriol that I continue to get still, I, I, it shocks me because I'm only speaking out about this because I'm concerned about the welfare of vulnerable children. That, that's all this is about. So to, to receive slurs and, you know, abuse and death threats and all the rest of it, mm-hmm. just, I don't know. It's very telling. It, te- it, it says a lot about the times that we're living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so polarizing and ugly. Um, does it get easier to handle that or is it just, I mean, how, how does that how does that feel? I mean, is that something that you ever get better at, at receiving or able to compartmentalize and block out? Or is it just, it just seems like the internet is, um, the discourse online is, uh, I don't know, I've stayed away from social media most of my life because I find, I, I feel very vulnerable to it. I feel like, um, yeah, people just let out their worst. Yeah, I think I think people do often show their true colours, um, and they they might say or write things that they wouldn't dare, you know, to, to say to you mm-hmm. to your face. And I, I, I will often offer a, a kind of an open public debate to certain people that disagree mm-hmm. with the other side of the argument. They always refuse. You know, they're happy to, to throw insults online, but as soon mm-hmm. as I challenge them to a kind of transparent debate in a public forum, they disappear. So. Mm-hmm. That's very telling as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, does it become easier? Mm, you get more used to it, so it, but it it still hurts every time. And and these these individuals find new and inventive ways to be rude and uh, obnoxious. I mean, I've seen a, over the last few months a significant increase in the number of people making comparisons between myself and the Nazis, mm. which you know, as a Jewish person is particularly unpleasant um they don't seem to care but it's just it's just crazy I, I i can't get my head around it but it's a sign to me that i'm making the right arguments because if i was being met by concrete arguments in opposition to what i was saying mm-hmm. then i'd have to really reconsider you know have i got this right actually but i, I never get that uh, what i just get is abuse and slurs and that tells me that they don't actually have a response to the points that I'm making Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it is telling as you say you know they refuse to have an open discussion with you but they're happy to drop a little insult um and as you say you got into this discussion because you were concerned about children I know you said that you previously to starting your master's program you worked as a, a counselor for something called Childline and what were you seeing in that capacity with regard to the gender thing? Were you, were you seeing an uptick in children calling about that? And, and what was the scope of your involvement with Childline, I guess? Yeah, I was, I was volunteering there as a counsellor once a week for about five years. It, it, it was that that actually 
made me decide to train as a therapist because I mm. I found that work very fulfilling and um, yeah I was noticing an increase in the number of young people coming through saying that they were trans mm -hmm. so that was a shift and then also I noticed a shift in terms of how the organization itself was handling it I started scrutinizing some of their policies some of their web pages on this topic and it was all very much again I felt ideologically based and kind of pushing this affirmation model. Um, I, I was coming in for shifts in the in, in the counselling room there and there were kind of ideologically based posters plastered all over the wall by this UK group Stonewall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I went in for one shift and it, there were posters all over the wall saying some people are trans, get over it. Mm. And that, that's quite a, it's quite an aggressive stance and that that shuts down conversation mm -hmm. because what I really wanted to do was to actually say, well, there's a lot of people out there who are suffering, a lot of children in particular suffering needlessly because of this ideology. But when you see a poster like that, it just shuts down the conversation before you can even begin. And then I recently, I walked past where Childline was because they, they got rid of me um, not long after my case um, went public. And I saw in the window of the counseling room, visible to all the counselors in there that they've got the trans pride flag you know hanging up in there mm. this, is, this is a mental health um environment mm -hmm. it, it should be free from ideological symbols mm -hmm. and yet there it is you know clear as day so i find that very worrying and i've even heard that counselors a child line have started introducing themselves to the children with their pronouns oh, and wow. asking asking what the child's pronouns in return are you wow know? Were you given any kind of, or count as, as a counselor there, were you given any direct guidance on how to handle children with gender dysphoria or gender concerns? Or, or was it more through these, these like oblique um, peripheral influences with their, their propaganda posters and stuff? Yeah, I, I think mostly the latter, but, but there were training modules on sexuality and gender identity and very much coming from a point of view of we all have this innate gender identity and some people don't identify with the sex they were assigned at birth, you know, language like that, which is, which is factually incorrect, but very much contested, but is told to you as if it is the unconditional truth, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not, it's not offered as one way of seeing things. It's offered as the way of seeing things. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, so Childline is, it sounds like it's a service that children in the UK can access freely without their parents being involved. They can just call and speak to an adult. Yeah, it's, it's a confidential service mm -hmm. uh, and they, they can speak to, about any issue. And, you know, Childline, does a lot of good work. I mean, that's why I started volunteering there in the first mm -hmm. place. And I spoke to, God, hundreds, if not thousands of children over my time there, mm -hmm. also all manner of issues. But on this issue, which has such serious repercussions, they, they've really dropped the ball on this one. Um, mm -hmm. And they've, they're doing a disservice to the, the children that they're meant to be serving. And what do you think of, of the idea of children being able to access and, and confidential conversations with adults without their parent being involved. 
I, I, I guess I'll, I'll preface that by saying that I have concerns around that myself. And so I, I haven't heard a lot of counselors have this discussion, mm. but I, I have, I tend to think that we should hesitate to see um, a separation of the child from family to access those kind of services. And so I have had a number of clients approach me and ask me to work with their young child. And I will usually instead offer parent coaching and work with them as a family unit rather than take the child on as um, a solo client. Because I think that it's really important to see children within their family system. And I worry about the undermining of parental authority and the values clashes that can come when you introduce an outside adult into the child's life. And so I not, not that that's a hard and fast thing, not that that can't work sometimes. I think that there are some situations where that's very helpful. But for me, that's something that I've been sort of broadly concerned with is this, this tendency in our culture to outsource some of that support system that the child needs to adults that are not carefully vetted and known by and trusted by the family. And so when I first heard about this child line option, that was the first thing I thought is you don't really know who your child is going to be talking with and what sorts of influence they might be exerting on the child's life. And so um, just kind of throwing that out there. And what do you think about that now? And do you think differently now than you did when you were working there based on this experience with the gender issue? Well, it's, it's demonstrates to me that if, if an ideology or a way of thinking can kind of infect, you know, from the top down, that that, you know, that, that can feed down into the, the interactions that you're having and the influence that you're having with children. So I think that's, yeah, I, I do feel that way. Um, you may, I mean, you make some interesting points. I think I draw a distinction between, you know, a, a kind of a known adult potentially even like in actual proximity with the child and developing a kind of lengthy therapeutic relationship with them. I mean, the way these helplines work is that it's anonymous from the counsellor's point of view as well, and it's it's only ever a one-off interaction. Um, so I, I think that changed the dynamic a bit. And then it depends on the presentation because sometimes children were coming through because their family were abusing them, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so, you know, in that situation, it would be dangerous for the parents to ever be notified that the child has, you know, reached out for support in that way. Mm -hmm. So generally, I think it's, uh, generally, personally, I think it's good that there is a confidential service, but it's not without its risks. I mm -hmm. would, I, I'd say that. Um, but generally on this topic, in terms of parents being kept out of the loop, coming back to the, the, the gender ideology trans debate, I think that's a big issue, particularly in schools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see this in the UK and I'm sure it's the same across the pond in terms of, you know, a child coming out as trans at school and, and schools having policies in which they will not tell a parent without the child's permission. And again, mm -hmm. a child can almost be living a double life. Mm -hmm. unit answering to a different name at school and the parents have, haven't a clue what's going on and if we if we come back to the point that gender dysphoria is a mental health condition mm -hmm. as we must because it is um if you compare that I've, I've said previously you know if um if a school teacher saw that the child one of their pupils wasn't, wasn't eating their lunch every mm -hmm. day was just not eating any food whatsoever 
and picked up on the fact that maybe this child has got some sort of negative relationship with their body or food or something like that, you know, it would be incumbent upon that teacher to notify the parents because there's a potential health issue, a health risk there. And yet you've got kids presenting saying they're trapped in the wrong body, they're, they're feeling dysmorphic, they want to have surgery and have hormones, and the teachers are keeping that completely hidden from parents. I mean, that's a complete abdication of duty of care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange that this is happening. Um, yeah, I, the, the hiding of important aspects of the child's life deliberately from their family is, is a very strange phenomenon yeah it's treating I, I do believe that we shouldn't be uh, unnecessarily patronizing towards children I believe that we should listen to our children we shouldn't just shut them down you know because we as adults know better however there is a distinction between children and adults and as adults we have a duty to safeguard and protect our children and they are children for a reason. And in the same way that we legally prevent our children from voting in elections or buying scratch cards or drinking a pint of beer or whatever it might be, so too must we prevent them from suffering irreversible harm from medical procedures. Mm -hmm. But that's gone out the window now. And these children are seen as kind of consumers in many ways who, if they want something, they'll get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you're, you're bringing these issues to the front. In my experience in my program that I've been talking about, the, most of the issues that I um, took exception to were based on race and race essentialism and the way that the program presented that. But gender was kept more peripheral and more in, uh, it wasn't addressed as strongly in my curriculum. It was more through almost these like, the peripheral references, sort of like what you experienced in Childline with the posters and the, uh, this was done through propaganda that was sent to us through the school and through trainings that we were offered the option of taking as, um, as like an addition to our core material. So they, they kind of kept that out of our core curriculum. And I haven't been exposed to these ideas as much in terms of my actual training but I think it's really something that's coming up more and more culturally. And so it's really great to have discussions around it that are frank and open and honest with real concern for the outcomes. This is what professionals are meant to do. I mean, particularly in the context of mental health, et cetera, you know, having these difficult discussions. I mean, with, with the race stuff, these ideologies are, are intertwined with one another and we're seeing you know, there's a different dynamic in the United Kingdom from, let's say, the States, but we're seeing more race issues cropping up over here. And actually, <clears throat> I, I know of, um, of a peer who's pursuing um, their training course for this gender identity service in, in London because they were bringing in critical race theory, you know, into, yeah. into materials. Um, but all of these ideologies do a disservice to mental health professionals and their clients because it, it means you're going into a client relationship with judgments to be made. And I, I remember I saw a client on placement while I was still training, straight white man, mm -hmm. 
and um, he was really struggling with his mental health and there was a lot of stress and things in his life. And he said to me that so often when he feels down, he starts kind of feeling guilty about feeling down because he's as because everyone keeps telling him he's privileged, you know, and he, he, he shouldn't feel that way because he's mm. white, you know, and he doesn't have to suffer the racial inequalities and all the rest of it. And because I don't, because I work neutrally and exploratively, I was able to kind of unpick that a bit with him. But I, I imagine, I was trying to picture, you know, God, let's say he sat opposite a therapist who ascribes to critical race theory, who ascribes to, yes, mm-hmm. you know, he has white privilege. Is that therapist going to say that to him? Is that mm-hmm. therapist going to say, well, yes, actually, you know, as a black therapist, you don't know what I've been through. And yes, you do have privilege. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see, I can see a therapist uh, who's ascribed to that ideology saying that to that client. I mean, and that, that would be the most unethical thing, you know, imaginable, but I can see it happening. Um, yeah. It's like he's got this internal voice, uh, self-flagellating and the therapist just reinforcing that. Completely. And then, and even if they don't expressly say it, you know, people and clients are very intuitive and they can pick up on a, on small, subtle dynamic shifts or change mm-hmm. of language, tone, et cetera. You can tell if somebody's judging you, and you can if you say, "I, oh, you know, I worry. I feel people keep telling me I'm privileged." You can tell if the person looking back at you is also thinking, "Yeah, you are privileged. Mm-hmm. You don't know how tough I've had it." And you know, maybe that therapist has had it tough, but it's not relevant for that therapy session because you're there to serve that client. Mm-hmm. So what's What's next for you? Are you able to salvage a, a career in, in therapy or counseling or are you moving on to something different? Well, at present, it's all on hold pending the outcome of my litigation. Um, because all of the training institutions, all of the regulatory bodies in the UK seem to be similarly you know, subscribed to this ideology. So I need to see what the outcome of my case is before I make a decision on that. But at present, it's all on hold. As I say, I've got no qualification. I can't set up the private practice that I was going to set up. So I don't really know what the future holds. Uh, I just, at this point, I just want my day in court, actually. Mm. Is that coming up or is it dragging on off into the future? It's, yeah, it's dragging on. Because I, you know, I first brought the claim now over a year ago and we're still tied up in some of the preliminary issues of it. So you know, we'll get there in the end and I'm, I'm always remaining hopeful that we have the trial at some point next year mm-hmm. it, it could take a bit longer than that but the main thing is it will get to a trial one way or the other mm-hmm. and then we'll have to see what happens you know when all the facts are aired and and because people have been donating to my crowdfund and enabling me to bring the case in the first place and it does add a bit of pressure because I feel that I'm doing this for others and not just for myself. But mm-hmm. you know, I want to, it, what happened to me is kind of almost inconsequential compared to what is happening generally in society on this. And I just want to make sure that therapeutic organisations and educational institutions in general think twice before you know, throwing a student under the bus simply for wanting a conversation about a really complex and sensitive topic. Mm-hmm. What suggestions would you have for people who are seeing, or for for parents of kids who are confused right now or considering reaching out to an adult for help? What what advice do you have for prospective therapy clients? 
unfortunately, you have to do your homework a bit. I mean, the kind of battle lines have been drawn. And I see it in the UK on therapist profiles on the websites. People are identifying themselves as affirmative or explorative. Mm-hmm. And in the long term, you know, that's not helpful to kind of have this internal battle, but it, it exists. So, you know, you, you, you've got to do your homework on this. Mm-hmm. Um, there are therapists out there willing to deal with these things neutrally and exploratively, but they seem to be in a minority, or at least they're not sticking their head above the parapet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very difficult. And m- more often than not, it's parents who, you know, are looking for a therapist or a counsellor for their child, not even for themselves on this. But I'd, I'd say just generally that on this debate, we focus so much on the children, mm-hmm. as we must do, but the impact that this has on families gets lost a bit. And I just always say to parents that I speak to who are going through this, you know, they also need to look after their own well-being and mental mm-hmm. health. It takes your toll takes its toll so um just to make sure that you're given you know space for yourself and your own well-being um i hope things continue to shift as i say there's been some positive changes in the in the uk around policy around government policy around health policy etc just have to hope that keeps continuing but if people feel able to speak out including therapists who are qualified or even trainee therapists you know if you feel that you can speak out about this and you're not worried that it's going to cost you your livelihood and you know cost you a roof over your head then I'd encourage people to do it because until more people do it it's just not going to shift in the way that we need it to mm-hmm. yeah and you've you've spoken out at great cost to yourself and I really admire what you're doing and I hope that your I hope your case goes forward and is favorable to you and that you're able to do this work because I think um, it's a it's a loss to the community to not have someone with your ethics and your skills able to practice the way that you have been trained to do thank you thank you James thanks for talking with me and thanks for sharing nice chatting all right I'll stop the recording